Well, good evening, church. Welcome again to our Sunday night teaching time. Thanks for joining us. And uh, get a Bible. We're in a study renewed in the spirit of your mind. Knowing how the life of God gets inside. We're going to look at Romans 12, these familiar verses, verses 1 and 2. And the, the long title that I'm giving to this teaching tonight is Thinking Like a Christian. The surprising roots of a transformed life. And then, and then this is another point I want to cover. So I worked it into the title and why practical teaching may not bring lasting solutions to spiritual problems. If there's anything you hear in a church over and over again is just give us practical teaching. Don't give us this doctrinal theological stuff. I just want stuff that's geared into life, practical teaching for real problems. And what I want to look at tonight is, is why that might not be the best approach to having our minds renewed by the Holy Spirit. That might surprise you a little bit, but let's study it together. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So there's the command to people, present your bodies. That's not something God does. It's something we do. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age. Okay, again, that's directed to us. That's not something God does. That's something we do. Don't be conformed to this age, but... Be transformed, and that's interesting because that's in the form of a command. It's not, and I, God, will transform you. Now, we know the the importance of the Holy Spirit, but that's directed to us. Be transformed, command form, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. If there's ever a text that makes it clear that This transforming of our lives happens, first of all, in the mind. Be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. The mind is key in this whole thing. So we're not just talking now about, you know, the power of positive thinking or upbeat thinking, be on the sunny side of the street, try and think nice thoughts. We don't mean that. It's transformed by the renewing of your mind. So these verses there, about me, And they're for me. They bear so directly on this whole subject of the renewing of our minds, the work of God in our minds. You remember last Sunday night, I talked about the the primary purpose of the human will is to direct the direction of the mind. What you give your attention to, you will come to love. What you love will ultimately control your life. The part in that process that you affect is what do you give your attention to? Your mind. What you give your attention to, you will come to love. What you love will control your life. The mind is key. So how does it work? Maybe more specifically, why does it not seem to work for some people? You hear the news. You you see what's going on with all sorts of professing Christians deconstructing their faith. It's not working for them. They can't hold on to it anymore. Why are there Christians, professors of new creations at one point in time, 
not feeling new anymore. Why do new creations sometimes go back to very old lives? I want to make two points in this teaching tonight. I just have two points. And, and not directly tied at this point to Romans 12, 1 and 2, though we will. We're going to be several weeks just in those two verses. But I have two thoughts that I think help us understand the goal of what God wants to do in saving us, redeeming us, sanctifying us. What is supposed to happen in the Christian life? So kind of big picture context before we funnel down to those two verses. Here are the two thoughts I want to expand on tonight. One, Christian conversion begins in our minds with an organic rebirth rather than an external moral adjustment. I I know that's a funny kind of a point. The, The key words are the Christian life is organic, not external. So those are the two words. Now, since neither of those words is used in our text, I I think I need to explain them. Organic, not external. Think about, you know, we're not that long after Christmas. Think about the way we decorate trees at Christmas. Whether you're a purist who has a living tree in a pot or you cut down a tree or you have an artificial tree, doesn't matter at this point. It applies to all of them. Think about the way we decorate our trees. The tree gets dragged home, it gets set up, and then we take ornaments and we hang them on the tree. We decorate the tree. The ornaments look nice. The tree is pretty as far as decorations go, but the decorations are all just hung on the tree externally. There's that word, externally. They're not a part of the tree. They didn't grow on the tree. They don't come from the life of the tree. We just hang them on the outside of the tree. They dress it up. Some really expensive ones might even look like they're part of the tree, but they aren't. They have nothing to do with the tree itself. The tree isn't involved in producing them. They're just on the tree. External. What do I mean by organic? Well, that's different. If, if you come in a few months, boy, it doesn't feel like it right now, but if you come in a few months and you look at my perennial garden, the backyard of my house, you'll see how God makes things beautiful. He doesn't hang flowers on the plant. He's not just decorating the plant externally. The flowers, the fruit come from inside the plant. That's organic. Not external, like the decorations on the tree, but like the roses on the rose bush. That's organic. It comes from the life of the plant itself. So unlike the decorations, these flowers, these fruits, they aren't just attached. They aren't just added on. They come because, well, because that's what the plant is. They are the plant. They are what that plant is organically. Decorations, external. Flowers from the plant, organic life. So remember those two words, okay, just for now. External, 
my Christmas tree, my lights, organic, the tomatoes on the vine, the roses on the bush. Nothing in Romans 12, 1 and 2 will make any life-changing difference until you learn to see the life of the Spirit as we've been describing it. It is it is unalterably, the Christian life is unalterably an organic life. You can't just mimic the life of Jesus. You can't just copy the life of Jesus. There's no mechanical way of just making yourself a Christian. Those, those, I know they're popular or used to be, those what would Jesus do bracelets. They're, they're kind of true, I get it, but they're not quite true. Morality starts on the outside. Oh, that's what Jesus did. I'm going to try doing that. Christianity starts on the inside of the life. You, you, you can make yourself a little better behaved if you want in all sorts of areas, but that has nothing to do with Christianity. Atheists can do that. Apart from the Holy Spirit's work in your mind, you can never make yourself godly, even if you can make yourself nice. Those aren't the same thing. This is so important, and it's so misunderstood. I want to just bear with me. I want to spend a little more time with this contrast between what's external and what's organic. There's, There's a right approach and a wrong approach to trying to live the Christian life. The wrong approach, I think ultimately the unfruitful approach, starts with just particular actions. The person says to himself, I'm just going to stop doing this bad thing. That'll make me a Christian. I tell lies. I must not do that. I swear. I must not do that. I cheat. I must not do that. I get drunk. I must not do that. Jesus taught against those things. So in other words, a person starts with a particular problem, a particular outward action, rather than the inward renewing of the mind. What you give your attention to, you will come to love. What you love will control your life. Now, in contrast, Jesus said we live in his way of life the way a branch abides in a vine. It's different. It's not just stuck on there. It grows out of there. This is organic life, inward life. Particular outward actions, while very important, that's not the starting place for new life. That's the fruit of new life. There are people who don't swear, would never cheat. They're not Christians. The outward actions are the fruit of Christianity. They're not the root of Christianity. Not doing something bad will never turn someone into a Christian. Never. As I said in the statement of this first point, the Christian experience begins with an organic change of heart and mind rather than just an external change of actions. Now, certainly it's true. Don't misunderstand me. Christianity reaches the actions. The outward life has to be transformed. Paul, Romans 6, 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, of course, we, we, you can't. You can't. A Christian doesn't have the option of continuing unrepentantly in sin. That's an obvious truth. But how one approaches the issue of personal sin 
as a Christian is different from the way many people think. See, the outward fruit of holiness grows in our lives from the inside. It's the result of an inner transformation, the renewing of the mind. It's not the same thing at all as just morality. It's, it's new life. I want to come back to this again at the end of this teaching. So it's not external, just changing the odd action. It's organic. It's new life from the inside out. I want to consider now one of the most popular misconceptions about the kind of truth our minds need in order for spiritual transformation to take place. What, what, what has to get into the mind to be transformed by the renewing of the mind? I know it's the Holy Spirit. I get that. But we're involved in the process too. And it relates to that first, remember in the title I said, there's something else I want to look at. I want to look at why practical teaching might not be the solution that a lot of people think it is rather than doctrinal or theological teaching. So that's point number two. We must understand why, quotes, practical teaching may not bring the best solution to particular problems. So remember, in the first point, the Christian life is organic, starts on the inside, comes out, rather than external, like the decorations on the Christmas tree. So each one must, as the Apostle Paul commanded, examine his or her heart to see if that change has taken place. New birth is what it's called. Now I want to look at two other words. Remember, external, organic. That's the first one. I have two more words that I want to talk about. The Christian life is comprehensive rather than just particular. I need to explain those two, I guess. I mean, spiritual life, Christian truth, doesn't just introduce itself to the mind merely as a solution to some specific need that I'm facing at that moment. It's a very popular approach in many churches, but I'm afraid that it might not bear the long-term fruit that we want. The gospel gets presented to people as a solution to a particular, remember, particular comprehensive. It gets introduced as a solution to a particular hurt, a particular need, a particular desire that the person has. person is lonely. Come to Jesus. He's the He's the friend in need. Person is living aimlessly, without purpose. Well, you can have a, a purpose-driven life. Person is struggling with sickness or lack, and Jesus is presented as someone who brings healing, prosperity. But, but in each case, note, in each case, a particular problem is singled out, and Jesus is brought in as, well, he can fix that. He can fix that for you. It concerns me a bit. It's becoming a very common approach in evangelism. And it has such broad and quick appeal because, because it markets itself under the banner of practical. It markets itself under the banner of relevant. Scratching where I itch. And the problem with it is it 
I don't think it will bear long-lasting fruit because Jesus never came just to uh, upgrade or repair some segment, some portion of my life. He came to claim ownership of all of it. Whether a particular problem ever gets fixed or not, he came to be Lord of all my life. Comprehensive, not particular. It's like a comprehensive insurance policy. They usually aren't, but pretend. Like a comprehensive insurance policy that covers everything. Jesus comes to take ownership of everything about you. Now, is what I'm just saying true? I think it is, and I want to show you some specific examples of it in the New Testament. Look at 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Paul writes, and he says, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know? Okay, here's the problem of sexual immorality. Dangerous sin. Deadly sin. And Paul doesn't want them to continue in it. Okay, so where does Paul go in his explanation? What's his reason for not being sexually immoral? Here's what he says, 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's redemption, the doctrine of redemption. Jesus shed blood on the cross, incarnation, all of that. You were bought with a price. So here's the conclusion. So glorify God in your body. Now, some things are obvious in the text. First, there's the command right up front. Flee from sexual immorality. This is bad, Paul says, verse 18. So in spite of the way, you know, most of the sitcoms are training us to laugh at sexual immorality or treat it lightly, Paul says we are to flee. That's the first word, verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Put as much distance between yourself and sexual immorality as you possibly can, and do it as quickly as possible. Flee it. And we all know why he says that. If I don't flee quickly, I might not flee at all. So just flee. Get out of there. So there, we all know what we should do. That's the easy part of the text. But it's not the main point I want to drill down into. I want to say emphatically that you can you can flee sexual immorality and still not be living like a Christian at all. I mean, there are, believe it or not, other people in other religions who flee sexual immorality. There are atheists who aren't sexually immoral, who flee it. So so what's the real issue here? Well, the real issue is the one that determines whether you're thinking like a Christian or not, okay? The real reason is this. What's the motivation? What's the motivation for fleeing sexual immorality? What's the motivation for sexual purity? Why flee sexual immorality? Or maybe to put it differently, how does, how does the Christian mind, opposed from all others, how does the Christian mind process 
the issue of sexual immorality. How can I tell if I'm thinking like a Christian when I flee sexual immorality? Every Christian needs to know the answer to this question if we're going to be renewed in our minds and see it as not just a particular issue of helping me stay sexually clean, but a comprehensive issue my whole life under the lordship of Jesus. Why does a Christian flee sexual immorality? And Paul's answer is surprising. Do I flee sexual immorality because, well, I might get AIDS or some other sexually transmitted disease? No, Paul doesn't even mention it. Do I flee sexual immorality because, well, I might get somebody pregnant? No, Paul never talks about it. Do I flee sexual immorality because, well, you know, I'm a young person. I grew up in the church. My parents will be brokenhearted. No, Paul never addresses that. How about I might lose my good standing? I'm a member in a church and, you know, everybody's going to see. I'm going to be embarrassed. No, Paul never talks about it. None of those things. None of those things come close to the motive for the Christian. Many of those motives are the motives of people who profess no faith at all in Jesus Christ. All of those reasons, though, are too small. Those aren't Christian reasons for fleeing sexual immorality. Those reasons are all rooted in particulars. A disease, a pregnancy, embarrassment, hurt. None of those reasons, listen, none of those reasons has God in it. And the Christian is to live all of life for the glory of God. So this is the comprehensive change that happens when the Holy Spirit works and renews the mind. The heart is captured. This is where the new life of Christ shows up so vividly and so differently from just the desire to be a better person. The Christian's driving motive, Paul says, you've been bought with a price. Redemption. Redemption. Paul says, you're no longer your own, lordship of Jesus. It has, it has almost nothing to do with just keeping rules and regulations. It starts with the whole of life, not just the parts of the life. Comprehensive, not just particular. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, those words should never be taken to mean that Paul is claiming absolute perfection for every Christian. That's not it at all. But here's what, here's what Paul does mean. The Christian is, is a new creation. His he is new in whole, not in individual parts. He's a new creation right now, not finished, but in the sense that every part of his mind, every part of his soul has been reached with Christ to the point that his desire in everything is to glorify God, not just to be a better person. This is, this is the way the genuine Christian thinks. 
It's organic, not external. It's comprehensive, not just in the parts. Whether he, Paul says, whether he eats or drinks, he does all to the aimed to the glory of God. So we, we need to just stop because we talk about being a Christian, the Christian life, so much that we don't always analyze what it is that we're talking about. Search your heart. Has Christ made this massive, comprehensive change in your life? Is this the new direction, pushing everything that you do so that God is glorified? Or are you just trying to solve a few stubborn particular problems, hoping Jesus will help you out from time to time when you need him? That's not Christian living. I hope I can make this truth clear to you. Let me say it this way. There is a sense in which Jesus wants to reach every external, particular problem of your life indirectly rather than directly. It, it seems like this is always the way real problems are dealt with in the Scriptures. I mean, think again, just a minute ago, Paul's instruction about fleeing sexual immorality. He doesn't talk about sexually transmitted diseases or pregnancy or personal embarrassment. No, what's he talking about? You've been bought with a price. So Paul is trying to keep these people sexually pure. What does he talk about? Conversion. Would we go at it that way? Redemption. Atonement. The cross. Even in our Romans 12, 1 and 2 text, I beseech you by the mercies of God. Do you understand all the mercies of God? Because that's the only way your mind's going to be renewed. You can't just fix little individual things of your life. These are doctrinal truths. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. I, I talk to people, as I'm sure all pastors do, the pastors on staff, I talk to people week by week who come looking for a solution to some particular problem. Pastor, help me with my marriage. Help me with my finances. Help me with my stress. The situations are endless. And I'm not saying they aren't real. Usually or frequently, they will not always see the connection between those things and their lack of understanding or grounding or interest in what they've come to think of as just, you know, the ordinary doctrines of Christian living but that's where their solution lies. A lot of them have been conditioned by much of the body of Christ to look somewhere else. A specific solution to a specific problem. Three steps to solving this. And now they're set on a long, twisted path with a million different voices screaming a million different practical solutions to their problem, and they'll wear themselves out on that journey. So, so what we're considering today, I know it's different, but it's foundational in the sense that none of the steps, efforts made in the walk of discipleship, none of them are going to click until these two principles are right. They're just so important that it's worth, it's worth uh, study, prayer, time, going back over these things again and again. Get this right before you move on to anything else. The Christian life is organic. 
from the inside out. It's not external, not just decorating the life. The Christian life is comprehensive. Everything gets done with the motive of the glory of God. It's not particular. I'm just looking to fix this little thing in my life, make it a little better. So, so to continue right in the renewal of your mind, you have to begin right. I know I've used the illustration a thousand times. You're buttoning your overcoat. You get the first button in the wrong hole. You're going to get them wrong all the way down. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. Make sure, make sure you've truly begun with the new life of the Spirit of Jesus and that it's organic inside, not just external, trying to fix a problem. And second, make sure you understand the principle of comprehensive, a new creation in all areas at the same time, the whole life moving in one direction. There is no other way. There is no other way to start the Christian life. The Christian life, you're either all in or you're not in at all. There's really no partial start in the Christian life. Next week, we're going to get right into that Romans 12, 1 and 2. What powerful verses will be a number of Sunday nights. Don't forget, we have two midweek services every week. Maybe it'll get better soon. It's looking like it might. Right now, 10 o'clock in the morning, right here every Sunday morning, and 7 o'clock Wednesday. This Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, right here at the church. What comes to your mind when you think about God? There'll be study notes for everybody. There's children's ministries going on. We'd love to see you Wednesday at 7. God bless the church. Stay in the word and love one another.